Mortimer, episode 22. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. I was hoping that good things would happen to our Mortimer, and it seems that the fates are playing into our hearts. I can't wait to see what happens in this week's episode. Meanwhile, on the other end of the coast, Peter Orange pulled his Ford Model T in front of a massive brick house. He was dressed all in black for tonight's expedition. It had always been a mystery to him how the Albrights had come into such a large fortune. Rumour had it that Mr. Albright had done accounting in California before he and his wife had moved to Georgetown. It was commonly known that Mr. Albright was the barrister for Mr. Iscariot, and Mr. Iscariot must have paid extremely well because the first house the Albrights couple had lived in was quite modest, and within three years they'd relocated into one of the most impressive houses in town. The lights were on in the living room, and Orange could hear the faint sound of music coming out of the windows, dancing through the crisp air and into the night. He opened the car door quietly, and tripping, he fell into the street, his foot knocking the door to the car shut noisily. So much for being quiet! Orange groaned to himself. He looked left and then right, before pushing up on all fours. He crawled to the front of the car and peered into the distance toward the house. There were shadows visible through the curtains and the music played on, undisturbed by Orange's clangorous misstep. He pushed up again and scurried to a large oak tree. He put his back against the rough bark and pulled out his notepad to record the time and location. 8.15 p.m., Albright residence. After Mrs. Albright's display at the coffee shop earlier that day, Orange had placed her at the top of his list of suspects. He wasn't sure exactly what he was looking for or what he was hoping to accomplish that evening, but he did believe that she was part of the puzzle. It all seemed to fit together too perfectly. She was a socialite, and as such she had to know Matilda Hornwasher and if she knew Miss Hornwasher, then maybe she had clues about her felonious activities. What if Mrs. Albright was involved in the activities herself? Orange's throat grew dry. Was that why she had behaved so strangely? Orange began to wonder if he was in over his head. Who goes there? A beam of blinding light was pointing straight into his eyes. Orange, is that you? You're blinding me! The light was lowered. Orange blinked rapidly, white orbs flashing, until he was finally able to see an officer getting out of a patrol car. Carter? What are you doing here? The officer approached him, his hat lowered over his eyes. You're on private property. No, I'm not. I'm on the boulevard. The city owns this. Come on, Orange. It's five feet from the house's yard. Carter sighed. Oh, what are you doing in this neighborhood? I'm taking a walk. 
alone, in the dark, at 8.30 at night? Some cop you are, Orange thought to himself, doesn't even know what time it is. Isn't a guy allowed to take a walk anymore? There are two missing persons, Pete. We can't have people sneaking around right now. You know that I have nothing to do with that. Yes, but rules as rules. We have to question all out of norm behavior. If you want to take a walk, do it in your own neighborhood. Fine, he glanced over his shoulder. The music had been shut off. Orange worried that the Albrights had heard them talking. Spend time with Emily, Carter was suggesting. You're newlyweds. Emily's with her mother tonight, but thanks for the suggestion. The officer shrugged. Pete, I'm sorry about what happened. With our team not working out and with the Jones case. Yeah, Orange flushed in the darkness just to rub it in. How were you supposed to know he was involved with a felon? Carter went on. You were a good cop. Thanks. Okay, well, I have to finish my rounds. Carter went back to his car and got into the driver's seat. Don't let me catch you walking around here at night again, though. Next time I'll be forced to take you in. Fine. Night, Orange. Night, Carter. Orange walked to his car as Carter continued on his route. He started the engine and reluctantly pulled it away from the curb. He waved at the cop as he drove past. Then he turned left, and instead of heading south toward home, he took another right turn. He wasn't giving up that easily. He drove several more blocks and parked the car again. He'd have to be more careful. He'd have to go on foot. It's getting too dangerous. I carry a sufficient amount of respect for my own bodily safety, but I can hardly understand why you insist on tormenting yourself. He stuffed tobacco into a pipe and retrieved a book of matches from the back pocket of his trousers. Ignoring her husband, she turned to snuff out the candles that lit the sitting room. What did you do that for? I quite like the light. Because there are cops snooping around everywhere. The cops aren't going to have any more success in their snooping by you walking around a darkened house. But his words did not give her comfort. She wrung her hands and paced the floor. Oh, what have you done with the documents? If they find them, we'll be ruined. They're not here. What do you think I am, an idiot? Oh, Charles. No, they're not here, he grinned. In fact, they're hidden somewhere no one will find them. <laughs> they're right under their noses, in fact. A fantastic joke, I'd say. But where are they? Don't you worry a pretty little head about it, he puffed. Smoke flowed out of his nostrils. I'd say you're worrying for nothing. Oh, he was on to me. I know he was. Orange? her husband snorted. <laughs> that boy couldn't tell his shirt from his socks if it weren't for his wife dressing him every morning. You say that, but he knew her other name. She was by his side, kneeling at his feet. Charles, we'll be ruined. Send her away. Have you lost your senses? He took the smoking pipe out of his mouth. Do you not remember? Her hand slapped over his moustache-framed mouth. Shh! She turned her head toward the front window, where curtains blocked out the night. Did you hear that? Get your hand off my face this instant! Charles, she whispered, her heart hammering in her throat. Listen! The room filled with deafening silence. I don't hear. There! A car door! She jumped up and dashed to the window. We do have neighbors. He puffed on his cigar with boredom. And they do have permission to move about as they please, car doors and all.
Hiding along the wall, she peeked out of the curtain. Oh, no! What is it, woman? She had his attention now, for while his wife did tend to be on the extreme side, she was not typically this absurd. He pushed his generously-sized frame out of the armchair and joined her at the window. I have a terrible time seeing in the dark, but I know there's someone out there. I can see movement. Move over. He pushed her out of the way and peeked outside. After an eternally long pause, he closed the curtains, a curious expression on his face. Who is it? What was it you said that that young man said to you today? Who? Orange. She gasped and brought a hand to her breast. He's out there, isn't he? Maybe she wasn't completely paranoid after all. He felt a burning starting in the pit of his stomach. Tell me everything. At once. Neville, if you please. Mrs. Dixon stepped out of the way so that Neville could knock. Obediently, he raised his fist and rapped three times on the magnificent wood of the front door of the Longhorn estate. There was a shrieking inside, and nary a moment later, a woman in uniform answered. Can I help you? Improper use of the word can, lazy pasture, Mrs. Dixon noted of the greeting with disapproval. She, of course, had trained the Iscariot staff throughout the years in carrying out their duties with the utmost integrity and discipline. A maid was not just a maid. She was the hands and feet of the manor, a representation of the family system. Every detail mattered. We are here to speak to Mr. Longhorn, Neville answered with condescension that made Mrs. Dixon beam with delight. All of you? The woman looked each at Neville, Mrs. Peabody, Millie, Mrs. Dixon and the Binkleys. Yes, all of us. For once, Neville's no-nonsense attitude was incredibly pleasing. Mrs. Dixon lifted her chin. Unless, of course, your master would have his guests spend the evening under front porch. This snapped the woman into action. Oh, of course not. Uh, do come in. The Longhorn entry was not as grand as the Iscariots. However, Gerard Iscariot had always been a profligate decorator. Mr. Longhorn, on the other hand, was deliberate in his extravagance and spent large sums of money on key pieces. The massive, sparkling chandelier that hung above their heads was a prime example. Millie looked up in awe as the Longhorn maid excused herself to retrieve the master. "'Don't ogle,' Mrs. Dixon elbowed the girl. "'It portrays subordinance.' What? You admire with reserved amusement and then move on, Mrs. Dixon instructed. Millie looked up again, nodded slowly, and then folded her arms, staring forward. Neville observed the entire exchange with a roll of his eyes. This is a beautiful home. Indeed. They will receive you in the evening drawing room, the maid announced upon returning to the group. It's far too late for the mistress to have coffee, but should you prefer tea, I will bring it in. She turned to lead them to the drawing-room. "'Leave the talking to me,' Mrs. Dixon ordered her compatriots. Oh, "'With pleasure,' Neville muttered. "'Everyone else, remain quiet unless you are needed.' As they entered the drawing-room, Mrs. Dixon put on a rehearsed expression of greeting, a mix of manufactured sympathy, respect and affection. "'Mrs. Longhorn, Mr. Longhorn.' The mistress of the house looked as though she'd been weeping, but was, at that moment, containing herself. Mr. Longhorn stood up in lieu of his wife, and shook each of his guests' hands. To what do we owe the pleasure? We have news about your daughter. Lily Lou, 
Mrs. Longhorn leaned forward in her chair and thrust a handkerchief to her nose. Please tell me she is well. I cannot bear to hear otherwise. I can only tell you how she was the morning that she went missing. Mrs. Longhorn abandoned all showmanship and launched into a fit of tears. Millie watched the woman with fascination. She'd seen quite a fair bit of tragedy in her young life. Two young horses of the manor passing away due to complications at birth, treasured items being lost in auction wars, the sinking of ships here and there, and not to mention the death of Gerard Iscariot. Yet none of these past afflictions had been accompanied by such an impressive display of emotion. "'What did you learn?' Mr. Longhorn gestured for the maid, whispered something into her ear. "'We found a letter.' "'A letter?' "'Yes, I have it here.' Mrs. Dixon opened it, and she began to read aloud. "'Dear families, we are sure you are probably dreadfully worried about where we are this morning, and for that we are sorry. But do not fret. We are quite safe. We are taking a little trip together. Yours, Percy Alabaster Binkley and Lily Lou Longhorn. P.S.' Lily says that she is sure that she will be grounded for life after this, but says that Reginald had his fun before joining the clergy and she wanted to do so as well. Bobby Sue's face was the colour of an eggplant. Percy ran away with a woman? That's my boy. This ain't something to celebrate. Mrs. Brinkley threw a decorative pillow at her husband. No, 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 Mrs. Peabody rushed to retrieve the pillow. She glanced at the shocked expressions on the longhorn faces. Don't do that, darling. Don't worry, Babby Sue. Now that we know that they left intentionally, we can rest assured that they weren't kidnapped. This is good. Mrs. Dixon attempted to de-escalate the two hillbillies. You want to start a wrestling match, baby? Jeb wriggled his eyebrows. He picked up a vase from the table by his side. Mr. Longhorn, make him stop, Mrs. Longhorn cried out. Put down the ceramics, Mrs. Dixon ordered. How could you say such a thing? Bobby Sue threw another pillow at her husband, jarring him, as the vase nearly slipped from his tenuous grip. Mrs. Peabody retrieved the pottery from Jeb's hand and, with an apologetic smile, took it back to her seat. He's just a-getting into little trouble, baby, Jeb soothed, just like you and I did when we was young. <laughs> that stopped her. He is? Yeah, Jeb grinned. You remember when we was fourteen? Bobby Sue blushed. I snuck out of my bedroom window every night for a whole summer. That's right, and we... Millie leaned forward in fascination. Enough of this nonsense. Let me see that letter. Mr. Longhorn's gruff command seized everyone's attention. Mrs. Dixon handed in the letter. Millie narrowed her eyes, observing the solemn exchange. The room remained silent as he read. Does it say anything else? His wife demanded. At that, he handed off the letter to Mrs. Longhorn. All this time, I thought that Lilu was on the straight and narrow. Mrs. Dixon could not help but feel sympathetic, for the expression on the man's face was earnestly dejected. She ran away, Mrs. Longhorn looked up from the letter. What does this mean? At this very moment, Mr. Peabody is sharing this newfound information with the authorities. They are already searching the certain counties, Mrs. Dixon endeavoured to sound optimistic. Oh, that is not enough, Mrs. Longhorn stood, her silken skirts flowing about her feet as she turned toward the window. Who is this Percy character? The knowledge that his daughter had not only run away, but that she had done so with a man, sank deeper into Mr. Longhorn's psyche, bit by agonizing bit. 
He's the nephew of Mrs. Ascariot, the son of her only sister and brother-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Jebediah Binkley. Jebediah Binkley? Mr. Longhorn pushed up from his chair and pointed accusingly toward Jeb. This idiot? The one selling tobacco at your party? Mrs. Dixon pursed her lips. I cannot tolerate damn good tobacco, too. Jeb was unoffended. They used Mortimer's parchment to write the letter, Millie exclaimed in sudden realisation. All eyes turned toward the girl. Millie could see Mrs. Dixon's cheek muscles bunching as she clenched her teeth. Reigning in his temper, Mr. Longhorn addressed Millie. Excuse me? Mortimer's paper. Millie looked about the room. That means that hats have gone up the stairs for something. Mrs. Peabody grasped Mrs. Dixon's hand. I don't understand. What is she suggesting? They had no need to go into Mortimer's room for paper, Mrs. Dixon informed the group. There was plenty of paper downstairs in the study. For what purpose did you bring this young girl? Mr. Longhorn's patience was growing thin. It seems highly improper for a maid to be involved in such matters. Let the girl speak. To everyone's surprise, Neville came to Millie's defence. Unaccustomed to being given a directive from the help, Mr. Longhorn bristled and his face grew red. However, considering the circumstances, more information couldn't hurt. He forced a slow, calming breath. Fine. Go on. Like I said... They could have gotten paper from many sources downstairs, but the paper there, it's Mortimer's. How do you know this? Well, turn it over, Millie instructed. It's smooth on the back, rough on the front. Mrs. Longhorn did as the girl suggested. She looked hopefully at her husband. It is, as she says. Mortimer only uses that kind of paper for his drawings. I know because I have to carry it upstairs for him each week when the new shipment arrives. What do you suppose could have drawn them upstairs? Mrs. Peabody wondered aloud. Mr. Longhorn's face blackened at the thought that came to his mind. They couldn't have both gone upstairs at once. Mrs. Dixon shook her head. We'd have noticed. All of us were doing rounds throughout the evening, checking on our guests. I myself made several trips upstairs. And Neville was stationed at the front door agreed Mrs. Peabody. Neville cleared his throat. Well, <clears throat> I did see Percy go upstairs at one point, but I thought it was to use the privy. Did you see him come back down? Mrs. Dixon asked, excitement building. Maybe they were finally onto something. Neville shook his head. No, I did not. Mr. and Mrs. Longhorn, when was the last time you remember seeing Lily Lou? Mrs. Longhorn stared at her husband, her eyes wide. I confess I, I do not know. Is there something upstairs that Mortimer has that would have been of value to those two delinquents? Oh, darling, do not refer to our daughter as such. And why should I not? Mr. Longhorn shot back. She is now in the United Ranks with other malefactors, disseminating their malfeasance across the country with their heinous and egregious behaviors. She is not. Mr. and Mrs. Longhorn, I do hate to interrupt. Mrs. Dixon stated above their shouting, but I have an idea. The sun sent down its lovely, glistening, warm beams of heaven, cutting through the last of the clouds as they evaporated in the morning light. Mortimer rolled over and felt his back groan in protest. He moaned aloud. You've earned your keep, came a voice. Mortimer peeked one eye open and noticed three heads peering down from above. Has Poseidon spared our lives from future plans of unbating abuse? Aye, Carly grinned and reached a roughened hand toward Mortimer. We've been pardoned this time. 
Despite his aversion to being touched by other human beings, Mortimer allowed himself to be lifted up into a standing position. He feared that without assistance he might never accomplish the task on his own. That was the worst gale I seen in my life, oh, Sid declared, panting from the effort of lifting Mortimer. Aye, any lesser boat to be crushed to bits in such a tempest. Kilgrew took a step away as Mortimer regained his balance. Mortimer looked about the deck to see crewmen running about, fixing, patching, and cleaning up in the aftermath of the storm. Her mistress had survived. He passed out from fatigue, <laughs> Cowlick quipped. That or fear, Sid interjected, but we figured you needed your sleep. Mortimer glowered at Kilgrew, for since the very first day upon the Esquire, the older sailor had been cruel towards him. His current demeanour seemed agreeable, even friendly, and therefore Mortimer was sceptical. The captain will be wanting to meet E, Kilgrew added, tomorrow. His back ached and his stomach churned. Mortimer was sure that if he was not dead yet, then he likely would be soon, and considering this to be his fate, he asked his companions the most logical question that could be asked. Since we're not dead and it's breakfast time, where's my sausage? Kilgrew slapped Mortimer across the back, causing him to cough and choke. Aha, scurvy bastard. He jerked his head toward the galley and addressed Cowlick and Sid. Get the old sea dog a sausage. Get him all the victuals he can ram into that cavernous muzzle of his. <laughs> then he pressed a bottle into Mortimer's hand. Drink up, ye half-perished, vomitous ballast peg. The day is for living, for tomorrow. The sea herself could claim us yet. Kilgrew tore away from the three and sauntered across the deck to scream at a crew member who was not tying the cannons correctly. Bottoms up, Sid demanded, clinking Mortimer's bottle with his own. It'll kill the pain. Will it? Encouraged and much to the liking of his new friends, Mortimer pulled out the cork with his teeth and took a long drink. The Esquire had endured a significant amount of trauma due to the squall, and the day carried with it a seemingly endless number of tasks and repairs to be completed. The communication and navigation systems were a total loss, and the sails had been torn. Hours later, as the sun dropped down past the horizon, the men began to sing. Tossing bottles back and forth, they belted out melodies with deficient aptitude and skill. The meeting of sky and horizon stretched out into an eternity of red and orange lights as the ship trudged on. For the first time in his entire life, Mortimer was unknowingly and decidedly drunk. Unilaterally and tirelessly, I fight for equity and brutality, Mortimer screamed into the night. A true democracy must demand frugality and public rectitude of its leaders. What in blazes is he saying? A sailor asked Cowlick, who shrugged and took a pull from his bottle. Perhaps if ye drink more, ye'll understand him. Aye, as long as the spirits are strong, I don't give a damn what the idiots are babbling about. As he staggered across the deck, Mortimer shot a finger into the air, his other hand waving the mostly empty brown bottle. With irony, 
constant ad adversary, and the idolatry of enterprise driving force of villainy. The civil liberties of the entire c c c continent are being c c compromised. In her mistress, my mission lies. Yeah. The command of drunken sailors called out in approval, eager for a saucy tale. And what did he do to her? Incensed to higher levels of passion, Mortimer lifted his head and howled like a dog. Arr, a plutocracy has compromised the valor of the nation. Justice must prevail. Here, my justice. Do we mean he won the wench? Sure do. In understanding, the sailors lifted their bottles. Here, here. Fueled by the imaginations of conquering lonely island females, many began to follow suit. The silence of the night was interrupted by lonely, sozzled howls. The governing documents are antediluvian and the, 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 the language full of riddles. The righteousness of our torchbearers polluted. Our postal service has been adulterated by nimrods and thieves. And the chief of police has the acumen of a diminutive schnauzer. How dare they elect a wailing dog? Overthrow the chief. C comrades, sailors of a m m mistress. Mortimer paused in his speech, took another gulp from the bottle, tipping his head backward. He paid no attention as gravity pulled him across the poop deck toward the railing. Ooh! Ooh! The party cried out in besotted glee. I shall lead you to. Mortimer belched impressively. A re re revolution! <laughs> the boat tipped and turned as if in response. Mortimer beamed. Mortimer thrust his arms out, his eyes closed as he screamed into the darkness. This country's only hope for justice and truth. Terrain once more dangles from the pernicious strands of the marionettes of despotism. Cut the strings. We want women. Oh! Pull out your weapons. Mortimer tripped and then regained his footing. He thrust the bottle forward like a drawn sword. Starting now, this reign of tyranny will f fall like the Ottoman Empire. Wait! Kilgrew, who had been watching the party from afar, suddenly screamed, Captain Vomit! No! But he was too late. Mortimer drunkenly bumbled and bounced like a beach ball as he popped over the rails. Man overboard! The company swarmed and staggered in a drunken, frantic response. Drop the boats! Starboard side! Cowlick looked over at Sid, his eyes widening with intrigue. Didn't he say something about not being able to swim? Sid nodded. Aye, that he did. 
They watched as the crew ran with frenzy, throwing ropes and dropping boats. That he did! As the evening stretched on, the Longhorns accompanied the Iscariot household back to the scene of the disappearance. We'll search his room, see if anything is missing. Mrs. Dixon helped herself out of the back seat of the car. Of course, Mr. Longhorn agreed as he followed Mrs. Dixon and Neville around the house to the front door. Quite logical. Oh, no, Mrs. Dixon blurted. For once Neville opened the door, there was Mrs. Iscariot standing in the hallway carrying something in her arms, which was swaddled in white bath towels. Shh! She put a finger to her lips. Oh, hello, Mrs. Iscariot. Is that a baby you have? Mrs. Longhorn delighted in babies. She hurried forward to see the little tot. Oh, no, no, Mrs. Longhorn. Mrs. Dixon hurried after the woman, but she was too late. As she got a closer view of the bundle, Mrs. Longhorn's eyes widened. Is that... A, a dog? Mrs. Dixon quite rudely thrust her body between the women. If you will forgive us, dear Mrs. Peabody, can you assist Mrs. Ascariot? Uh, with pleasure. Neville, take the Longhorns up to Mortimer's room. Was that a dog in her arms? Mrs. Longhorn was asking as her husband guided her away from the matriarch of the house. Neville cleared his throat, moving briskly toward the staircase. Uh, Mr. And Mrs. Longhorn, if you please... Mrs. Dixon scurried after Felinda and Mrs. Iscariot as Neville and their guests went up to search for clues. He needs a diaper change. Where did she get that dog? Isn't that the poodle ne Neville found before the party? Millie was breathless. She suppressed the urge to jump in excitement. That mongrel? Mrs. Dixon all but shouted. I thought I told him to dispose of it. Mrs. Peabody took the dog from Mrs. Iscariot's arms. I'll change him, dear. In approval, the mistress released the animal, and spreading her skirts, she sat down on the kitchen floor. No, he just let her go in the woods behind the manor. Millie shook her head as she followed Mrs. Peabody. What an adventure! Mrs. Ascariat here, sit in this chair. Mrs. Dixon attempted to forget about the dog as she assisted the mistress from the floor into the chair. Do be sure to use the lavender powder once you've wiped his bottom. Mrs. Iscariot called to Mrs. Peabody, who had gone through the back door into the yard to find her husband. Then to Mrs. Dixon, You do know how Morty loves his lavender. Marty? Mrs. Dixon brought a soapy dish rag to the woman and went to work washing her hands, but she had no idea where she had acquired that filthy mongrel. Eugene says that upstairs has enough room for the other children. There are others? Mrs. Iscariot flushed. Well, not yet. She allowed the nanny to finish cleaning her hands. Mrs. Dixon cleared her throat. If I may ask, she gazed into the woman's face. Who is Eugene? Mrs. Iscariot pushed up from the chair, and snatching Mrs. Dixon's wet rag, she spun around in a circle, holding it out like a handkerchief. Of course I shall, she said to the invisible person and began to dance. My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. She twirled while reciting the poem in a sing-song voice. My love is like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. Mrs. Ascariot, please, I must know who Eugene is, Mrs. Dixon pressed. Do have a seat and tell me. 
boys, we'll be boys, giggled the deluded matriarch. She waved at her invisible dance partner and allowed Mrs. Dixon to guide her back to the chair. A boy with hair like carrot cake sailed across the sea. Percy, I must check under the apples. Millie entered the kitchen, looking incredibly dejected. Mr. and Mrs. Peabody are taking the dog away. Have you the apple treasure? Mrs. Iscariot seemed to have completely forgotten about her dog baby. Mrs. Dixon nodded. Yes, dear, it is upstairs, then to the maid. Millie, please get the applesauce from the icebox and take Mrs. Iscariot to her room for a lovely bedtime story. Okay. I have to check Andy Longhorns. Mrs. Dixon hurried upstairs, still at an absolute loss about the identity of the enigmatic Eugene that captivated her mistress's thoughts. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym. Audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.